bear with me, I'll just complete my reshuffle. Thank you. Uh, better than all the ones I read online this afternoon, I'm afraid to say. Very good. Good evening and welcome, and thank you all so much for coming out or coming in uh, on such a glorious day. I hope you don't mind if I stand up. It just enables me to see all of your wonderful smiling faces uh, and also to notice if I actually put anyone to sleep uh, as part of this evening. There were three men who were sat discussing what would happen at their funerals. And the first man said, well, when the mourners see me lying in my coffin, I would like them to say, he was a great teacher. He cared for his pupils. He went the extra mile. And you only have to look and see where his pupils have reached now to know what a great teacher he was. And his colleagues nodded sagely. And the second man said, well, when I see, when my mourners see me lying in my coffin, I want them to say, he was a great doctor. He really cared for his patients. He didn't just go through the motions. He was concerned with every aspect of their care. And you only have to look at how many people have been made well again under his care to know what a great doctor he was. And his two companions nodded sagely. And the third man said, when my mourners see me lying in my coffin, I want them to say, look, he's moving. <laughs> now, what are we to make of Jesus of Nazareth? Was he just a great teacher, as most people accept that he was? Teaching things that have underlain the, the laws of many countries, including our own, and morality for the last 2,000 years. Was he something more than that? Was he someone who somehow was able to bring a healing touch to people he met, suffering from both mental and physical illness? Or was there something even more fantastic going on? Something that happened after his death. As Gary has just shared, I've been a lawyer. I've been a lawyer now for 28 years. And in one capacity or another as a lawyer, I've been dealing with evidence for 28 years. And I've also been a Christian. I've been a Christian for more than 28 years. And over the last few years, I've been thinking more and more just how strong is the evidence on which the Christian faith is based. And in particular, how strong is the evidence underlying the resurrection? And as I've read around the subject, I've found that there are two extremes, as with most things in life. At one extreme, uh, you have committed and convinced Christians who say, we have four eyewitness accounts. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What more do we need? Case closed. And at the other extreme, uh, we have uh, atheists uh, who are very firmly of the view that... No matter what you say about the evidence, it just doesn't support what Christians claim. So on the one hand, you've got Christians who would write a very short version of the book I've written. Here it is. Was the tomb empty? Yes. And you have atheists who say things like this. And this is something that I read uh, in a magazine as I was uh, in the process of thinking through the issues. This is just, a man called Ralph Jones said this, There is not, first and foremost, a shred of truth in any of the extraordinary claims that the Christian faith makes. There is no way one can go from reading about a high-profile Bronze Age preacher in Israel 
to believing that he was born of a virgin, that he was resurrected, and that he's therefore the Son of God. To believe Jesus was resurrected on the basis of historical evidence would require a staggering level of credulity. And I don't know how many Christians would argue that the case could be made. Why, therefore, does there exist this desperate urge to draw gargantuan claims from pitiful evidence? Why not concede to a very obvious defeat? It is this wishful thinking, this need to have comforting and childish explanations that defy, defy logic that informs my rejection of religion. So those are the two extremes. An extreme, it says so in the Bible, that's all we need. And the other extreme of, there is simply no reliable evidence whatsoever. Welcome Fiona, it's lovely to see you. And when I thought about the matter, I wanted to take a very different approach. An approach that did not end up on either extreme, but an approach which encouraged people to think for themselves. An approach that said, look for the evidence, and then look at the evidence, and make your own conclusion when you've done so. And so, although the title is, Was the Tomb Empty?, that just forms a very small part of what I look at in the book. And I approach the matter, and I'm going to approach the matter tonight, in a summary way, in three different stages. Now, this is not the sort of presentation that you hear from many pre uh, preachers, and indeed, I have to say, from many barristers. I apologise in advance if we have barristers or preachers here. Their three-stage approach is, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell it to you, then I'm going to tell you what I've told you. That's not the three-stage approach I use. The three-stage approach that I've adopted, as it's turned out, has been rather like a trial. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with a trial in the court. Many of you are lawyers and you will be familiar. The trial starts with opening submissions. The advocates tell the judge and the jury, if there's a jury, what the issues are that they're going to have to decide and how they can do that. The second stage is the evidence of all different types. And the third stage uh, is a summing up, closing submissions by the advocates, and then a decision or judgment by the judge or jury. So, my opening submissions are to look at the approach that a lawyer would take to a case and to say, this is the approach I think we can adopt when looking at the evidence. <coughs> and the tools of that trade are to apply the burden and standard of proof to the evidence with an open mind. I'll go through that slowly. The burden and standard of proof. Lawyers, again, are familiar with this. What that means is, who has to prove something and how do they prove it? The general rule is that a person who makes an allegation has to prove it. So if it's a prosecution of someone for a crime, it's the prosecution that has to prove that the defendant is guilty. He doesn't have to prove his innocence. And my view is that the burden of proof is fairly and squarely on those of us who are Christians. Because, generally, in almost every instance we say except one, dead people stay dead. And if we are arguing or suggesting that that isn't so in the case of Jesus, then the burden is fairly on us to prove it. To what standard do we prove it? There is a criminal standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt. There is a civil standard of proof on the balance of probabilities. It's more likely than not. Well, just think for a moment. 
If you were making an important decision in life, for example, deciding who you were going to marry, would you make that decision on the basis of, well, it's more likely than not when we'll get on? Or would you make it on the basis that you were pretty certain, that you were sure? And if you would make a decision of that importance, to that standard of proof, then surely making a decision that Christians say can be life-changing requires that standard of proof as well. And I acknowledge that sets the bar very high, beyond reasonable doubt. Can you be sure? But that's the standard of proof that I think applies. So we take the burden and standard of proof and we apply it to the evidence. The evidence of witnesses. Well, we obviously haven't got any living witnesses from 2,000 years ago, but we can look at what has been written by witnesses. The evidence of documents. What lawyers call real evidence. Solid things. Circumstantial evidence. The circumstances surrounding the event. And expert evidence. I'll come back to that in a minute. And finally, we do this exercise with an open mind. You've probably heard the phrase, when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And that's not how we should be approaching this subject. All judges, all juries, must approach a case that they are dealing with, with a completely open mind. Following the evidence where it takes them. And juries are always told that they must decide a case on the basis of the evidence presented to them. But we have to be realistic, don't we? We are all people. We all have prejudices. We all have preconceptions. And what I suggest is that what we have to do is to recognise what our prejudices are, we have to recognise what our preconceptions are, and to try and move beyond them and take them into account. Let me give you an illustration. In 2007, Channel 4 screened a documentary called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And it was about a tomb that had been discovered uh, in, I think, 1980 uh, in East Jerusalem in the Talpiot area, which is known as the Talpiot Tomb. And Channel 4 screened a documentary which made claims based on the inscriptions within the tomb and some DNA evidence that this was undoubtedly the tomb where Jesus' mortal remains lay and those of his family including his wife, Mary Magdalene, and his son. Now, as you can imagine, this caused a bit of a stir. It was directed by James Cameron, uh, the director of Avatar and Titanic, so it had very impeccable credentials. But the immediate reaction and prejudice of conservative Christians was, naturally, this must be a load of rubbish. And the immediate prejudice of sceptics was, yes, at last we're right. It's necessary to move beyond those prejudices and to say, OK, well, let's look at the evidence that they actually presented. And a number of experts did that, and I do mention it uh, in one of the appendices in the book, in case anyone's interested, to show that actually, when you go through, piece by piece, the evidence that they built their theory on, it collapses. But you've got to move beyond your initial instinctive reaction as you look at the evidence and try and do it with an open mind. So that's part one, the approach. Part two, the evidence. Now clearly, in uh, the remaining 16 minutes, uh, I can't even begin to skate over it all. Uh, but I want to just uh, run through one or two key elements. And the first element is, in any case, there is always a starting point of what is not in dispute. There will be some facts that everybody agrees about. 
Sometimes there are not many, not very many, but there are always some. If it's a road traffic accident claim, there's at least agreement that there's been an accident usually. Occasionally there isn't, but there will at least be some agreement between the parties. What is the starting point when we look at the evidence for the resurrection? And this actually became very, very significant as I researched the whole area. Because the starting point is actually fairly extraordinary. Because we're in first century Palestine. After a series of conquests lasting for hundreds of years, the Romans are in charge. Therefore, the, the, Israel, the Israelis are a nation that is being ruled by a foreign power. And yet somehow, unlike all the other countries and territories that Rome uh, conquered, the Israelis, hang, the Jews, hung on to their monotheistic faith. They didn't allow the other gods that the Romans worshipped to creep in. So they still believed firmly in one god, Yahweh. Yahweh was particularly to be located in the temple in Jerusalem, which Herod had spent decades rebuilding to its splendour. And that was where, in the Holy of Holies, one particularly encountered Yahweh. The Jews were the chosen people. They were chosen by God, children of Abraham. And they had a strong messianic hope that the Messiah would come and he would liberate them physically from their oppressors, who at that time were the Romans. And finally, there was a growing belief, not held by all Jews, but growing, that one day there would be a resurrection of the righteous dead. And that would be at some point in the future, the end of the current age, the beginning of the glorious new age. So this was the setting from which Christianity arose. And you just have to stop and think for a moment as to what actually came out of that. Out of that came a religion based on the death of one man. The death and alleged resurrection of one man. The resurrection of a single man now, not the resurrection of all the righteous dead in the future. The Christians proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah, despite the fact that the Jews still, uh, that the Romans still ruled over them. The Christians said the kingdom of God is here, despite the fact that the kingdom of Rome was still there. Jews still worshipped at the temple, but the Christians said Jesus is the true temple. He is the true place in which we can meet the living God. And although the Jews were the chosen people, Christians said, actually, the chosen people are all those who are in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike. And finally, they began to say, tentatively, that in some way, this man Jesus uniquely embodied God on earth. Now, you only have to stop for a moment to look at the undisputed facts to see that something pretty remarkable must have happened to bring that faith out of first century Palestine. Uh, I put it this way, and just a couple of times when, if you don't mind, I'll read from the book because I like what I've written, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Our summary of the locus, there's a legal phrase for you, the locus in quo, where it happened, shows just how extraordinary this series of proclamations was. At a stroke, it was blasphemy to the Jews and treachery to the Romans. 
It took the Jewish expectations of the Messiah, the Kingdom of God and Resurrection and completely redefined them. And against all the odds, it survived opposition and persecution and outlived the Jewish Temple, the Jewish State and the Roman Empire. The simple but profound question we must ask is this, what happened which was so powerful as to produce this result? We must continually bear this in mind as we work systematically through the evidence. And so from that starting point, I look at the evidence. And I'm just going to summarise it now because, as I said, I haven't got time to go into it in detail. We have the witnesses. And I look in particular at three witnesses for whom I believe we have very good, reliable evidence. There is Paul, who wrote a significant part of the New Testament and who started out his life a violent, literally violent, opponent of the Christian faith. There is James, the brother of Jesus, about whom I'll say a little more in a few moments. And there's Peter, who was a follower of Jesus from the start, and yet, uh, as you probably know, betrayed him at the critical moment. So there's the evidence of those witnesses. There may be lots of other witnesses as well, but those are ones for whom I feel we have good, reliable evidence. Then there are documents. There are documents outside the New Testament and documents inside the New Testament. And when I deal with the Gospels, I think we need to treat them like any other document. We don't treat them as some way special because they're the Word of God. I know that Christians believe that, but if we're trying to objectively look at the evidence, we don't give them that special status. But nor do we throw them out of the window because they're written by Christians, which is what some sceptics do. Likewise, other documents. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus mentions Jesus in two passages. In one of them, uh, he refers to Jesus as having been the Christ. Now, frankly, it is exceptionally unlikely that a non-Christian Jewish historian would have said that. So that passage is deeply suspect. In another passage, uh, referring to James, Jesus' brother, he calls Jesus the so-called Christ. It is extremely likely that he did write that. He mentions about 20 people called Jesus in his histories. And therefore, that is a way of designating this particular person called Jesus. So I suggest we should treat all the evidence as we would any other documents. There's the real evidence. Jesus' body and Jesus' tomb. And I'll also come back to that in a moment. There's the circumstantial evidence. The early church itself. How it developed, what it believed, what it practised, what it taught. There's expert evidence. Now clearly, there are no experts in the subject of resurrection. I also don't want to rely on theologians and biblical scholars, because they would immediately be seen as biased. But there are paleographers, ancient historians, uh, literary critics, who can help us when we look at the, the, the documents, the New Testament documents, and ask how reliable are those, and what are they? Are they written as history, as, ex as, as witness evidence, or are they a myth? or a legend in their structure. And finally, uh, I look at other explanations. In a trial, as I've said, somebody has to prove something. And let's assume uh, that you're claiming that you've been run over by a car. You have to prove that. It's not actually strictly necessary for the defendant to prove the opposite. But always, almost always, 
they will try and do that. Because if they don't put up a plausible alternative, it's going to be much more difficult to defend the claim. And so I think it's only fair to look at some of the other explanations that have been advanced over the years to explain the evidence. And there are so many of them, to be honest, that, that I could only scratch the surface. And I took the main ones, although I then put a structure in place, I hope, to enable other people who are interested to use the same evidence to assess any other uh, theories that they may come across. And I was guided by some very wise words from that character Sherlock Holmes. It is a capital mistake to theorise before one has data. Insensitively, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And particularly some of the more popular level uh, bestsellers uh, that I read did very much and very obviously do that. They took a theory and then analysed the evidence based on it, rather than working the other way round, which is what I've tried to do. And it seemed to me that any other theory that seems to explain the resurrection evidence has to satisfy three conditions. Now, I don't know if you've come across the idea of necessary and sufficient conditions. A necessary condition is one that has to be met if the result is to follow. So, for tonight, for example, if you wanted to hear me speak, you had to be here at the right time. That is a necessary condition. But it's not sufficient, because I had to be here as well. So that's a second necessary condition. The two together are sufficient. Now, you can be very pedantic and say there are all sorts of other conditions. The room has to be open. There has to be no fire alarm so we're not evacuated and so on. But you get the general idea. And I think that there are three necessary conditions that any theory has to meet if it is to be sufficient to explain the evidence. And the first is the empty tomb. What happened to Jesus' body? There isn't even any certainty as to where Jesus' tomb is. I've never been to the Holy Land. Some of you may well have been. If so, you'll probably know that there are two rival tombs the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Garden Tomb. And interestingly, as I've given a similar talk to this in different venues, I've had people come up to me afterwards and try and persuade me that each of them is the genuine tomb of Jesus, which rather proves my point, that nobody knows for certain. Compare that with all the other major religions. Muslims know where Muhammad is buried. Jews know where Abraham is buried, and so on. But the early church just doesn't seem to have been interested. The earliest explanation, which is actually in the Gospel of Matthew, given for this, is that the disciples stole the body. Uh, and the uh, very eminent uh, lawyer uh, and former uh, director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies, Sir Norman Anderson, uh, once said that this would have been impossible both psychologically and ethically. Given what the disciples had gone through psychologically, uh, they could not uh, then have gone and stolen the body. Ethically, they could not and would not have stood up preaching that, that Jesus had risen again if they had, as it were, the skeleton in the cupboard, literally. <laughs> there are lots of other explanations that are given to what might have happened to the body, and I deal with some of them in the book, but my own view is that they are all weak, because they all rely on somebody knowing what happened to the body and deciding for reasons which is very difficult to comprehend to say nothing to anybody about it. So that's the first condition. It's got to explain the empty tomb, the lack of a body. 
Second, it's got to explain the resurrection appearances. Because, like it or not, a lot of people claim to have seen the risen Jesus in the period immediately after his death. And I said I'd mention James again. And I want to mention James specifically because the evidence about him is very small but very fascinating. He's virtually invisible in the Gospels. Despite being Jesus' brother, he's only mentioned once or twice. And it's not positive. John's Gospel says even his own brothers did not believe in him. So we have pretty strong evidence that James was not a believer. And it strikes me that that's very reliable because the early church is unlikely to have put that negative thing about his past uh, in a Gospel if it wasn't true. But we also know that very rapidly after Jesus' death, he became a leader in the early church. We're told that in Acts, Paul refers to him as being a pillar of the church. We also know through Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, that he suffered a martyr's death for his faith. The simple question is, what could have happened to change him? And we have an answer, and it's only five words long, and it's given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he appeared to James, he being Jesus. Then he appeared to James. There's a resurrection experience which resulted in a huge change in his life. And we can see that in Paul, we can see that in Peter, we can see that in many others. So the second necessary condition is the resurrection experiences. And the third necessary condition which has to be satisfied by the evidence is it has to explain the rise of the early church. Because we know that the early church preached a message that centred on Jesus' death and resurrection, not on Jesus' teaching, not on Jesus' healing. Not that those things were irrelevant, they weren't the centre of the message. We know that the practice of the early church also focused around Jesus' death and resurrection, because from a very early date, uh, the eminent church historian Professor Chadwick tells us, Christians met on Sunday. They also met on the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was still the Jewish holy day. But they additionally met on Sunday. Why? Because that was the day when they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. They celebrated the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And although that was focused on Jesus' death, the liturgy they used, we know from the Bible, was that they were celebrating his death until he comes. He'd gone and he was coming again. And they celebrated that on the Lord's Day. And their final uh, mark of their faith was baptism. From a very early stage, they baptised that. Again, we know that for Paul, we know that uh, elsewhere. And baptism was immediately associated with the death and rising of Jesus. The going down and the coming up. Yes, there had been baptism before. There was baptism in the Jewish faith. John the Baptist baptised. But with the Christians, it was immediately associated with the dying and rising. And finally... The early church, as I've seen, uh, as I've said, were persecuted for their faith. So that's the third necessary condition. To meet, the to meet satisfactorily the evidence, any explanation has to deal with the empty tomb, it has to deal with the resurrection experience, and it has to deal uh, with the rise of the early church as it did. So that's part two. I've dealt with the approach, I've dealt with the evidence, on to part three, which, as I say, is the closing submissions, the summing up, and the reaching a verdict. Because what I do after setting out the evidence 
is invite everybody to reach their own conclusion. Because as I say, I'm not particularly interested in other people forming any views on the basis of my conclusion. I want people to think for themselves. God gave us brains for a reason. And we can use them. And we can use them in this respect as well. And after having invited people to reach a conclusion, I go on to say this. Having reached a decision as to the facts, the task of the judge is still not complete. Because he needs to go on to consider the consequences of that decision. Sometimes the consequences are obvious. On other occasions, a decision on the facts is only the beginning of a whole series of other issues. Similar principles apply after we've reached our decision whether Jesus rose from the dead. If we've decided that he did not, the consequences will be simple. We can walk away from the issue, perhaps agreeing that it's a wicked, vicious, heartless hoax and that Christians must be particularly gullible. But if we decide that Jesus did rise from the dead, what are the consequences? Is this just a unique and fascinating historical anomaly to be filed mentally with other quite interesting facts? I suggest not. I suggest that such an extraordinary event in history requires any serious inquirer to think very carefully about its meaning. For the early church, Jesus' resurrection was not just an interesting fact or a theological talking point, but the focal point of God's power to change lives, something that could be experienced as personal knowledge. And this has continued throughout history. Although the church has much to be ashamed of, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the wars of religion and more, wherever there has been authentic Christian faith, lives have been changed. Criminals have turned away from crime, addicts have been freed from addictions, selfish, self-centred individuals have become selfless and generous. In the memorable words of a Christian in Wales in the early 20th century, whether he turned water into wine or not, I do not know, but in my own house I have seen him turn beer into furniture. This is in fact the final piece of evidence for Jesus' resurrection, the changed lives of people who have encountered the risen Jesus. This is not evidence susceptible to analysis in a court. A court could observe the change in someone's behaviour, but it could not observe the catalyst for the change within the person. This kind of evidence can only be truly observed by personal experience by individuals deciding for themselves to put their faith in the risen Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. We are found to be false witnesses about God. We are still in our sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now for one minute I take off my hat of impartiality and am utterly partial. I believe personally that Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord. I believe that he challenges each one of us to follow him. I have seen significant and substantial changes in my life as I have done so. As a lawyer I look around the world and I see terrible things happening every day. You only have to open this morning's newspaper any newspaper, to see awful things happening across the world. And to know for certain that most of the perpetrators will never be brought to justice. Murders, rapes, human trafficking, terrorism, all the rest. Most of these people will never be brought to justice. It seems to me that this cries out for some sort of justice. 
And so I believe, as a Christian, that there will be a final and a perfect judgment by an all-knowing God, both of righteousness and love and mercy. And I believe that as Christians, we can experience God's mercy and grace by trusting in him. So, as I say in the book, I believe this is a question that everybody can ask for themselves and can answer for themselves. And having done so can say, as judges never do, in except, except on American TV programmes, case closed. Thank you. <laughs>